Turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, that's on page 823 of the Bible there underneath the seat in front of you. Friends, if you forgot your Bible this morning, that black Bible is there for you to use. Uh, if you don't happen to own a Bible, well, now you do. Please take it, that Bible home and make it your own. Matthew 18. Uh, if you're new here with us at Redeeming Grace Church this morning, uh, welcome again, friends. We're so thankful that you've joined us. Uh, even though it may feel this morning like you're kind of jumping on a moving train uh, in this Matthew series, uh, you've actually come to us at a pretty decent uh, point in the, in the book of Matthew. Matthew structures his gospel around five big blocks of Jesus' te- teaching material, kind of his, his sermons, his authoritative teaching as the Messiah King and the Son of God. Uh, Matthew 18, which we begin this morning, is kind of the fourth big block of the five. Uh, so in, you remember Matthew 5 to 7, you have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's the first big block. Then in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus gives instructions for his disciples' mission. And then in Matthew 13, we, we read and studied together the, the kingdom parables that Jesus gave. And now in Matthew 18, the focus, believe it or not, is on the kingdom community. How should we relate to one another within the church? Well, friends, without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety and nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 18 1 to 14 is something like this. The main idea of the text that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. To follow Jesus the King, humble yourself like a child, and love all those who do. To follow Jesus the King, to enter His kingdom, to come under God's saving reign, humble yourself like a child, and love all those who do. 
Uh, Perhaps you notice as I read how Jesus uses this object lesson of a child to portray the type of humility necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he kind of piggybacks on that illustration, doesn't he? By calling his followers little ones, essentially children through the rest of the passage. The idea of of the, the little ones is what kind of stitches this passage together. Now, two points this morning mirroring these two big ideas that Jesus presses home to us. Number one, we must prioritize the greatness of humility. We see that so clearly, don't we, in verses one to four. Prioritize the greatness of humility. Number two, pursue the holiness of love. Prioritize the greatness of humility, pursue the holiness of love. Beloved, I pray that the Lord would use his word among us even this morning to give us a deep and abiding humility as his people. And that in turn, he might also give us a deep and abiding love for one another. Number one, prioritize the greatness of humility. According to verse one, Jesus' disciples approach him with what we can only describe as a crass question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Friends, think of it. Here they stand in the presence of Jesus, the King of heaven. Uh, For the last two years, they've watched him do amazing thing after amazing thing. The healing of the the blind and the lame. The the hushing of the wind and the waves. Jesus rebuked demons as if he was their master, because indeed he was. He spoke, and the dead rose to life again. Peter, James, and John had just seen Jesus' glory unveiled on the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus had just predicted his own death and in turn his resurrection from the grave. And yet they had the audacity to ask him, who is the greatest? Their question essentially is, Jesus, who is the top disciple, right? Who's going to be the top dog after you're gone? Is, Is it Peter? Is it the one whom you called the rock? Is it James and John maybe with him who who seem to form your inner circle? The disciples had rubbed shoulders for over two years with the Messiah King and the very Son of God, and yet their hearts were fixated on their own greatness and not His. Instead of being captivated by Jesus' glory, their hearts pined for upward mobility in Jesus' kingdom. Friends, the disciples' question reminds us that it is possible to be around Jesus. It's possible to do things for Jesus and for our hearts not to be affected by Jesus. Friends, if you and your pride have an exaggerated estimation of your own greatness, there's just no question that what will happen within your heart, it will seek to diminish the greatness of anyone else, especially Christ. Pride won't let you become enthralled with anyone else's glory but your own. But if you prayerfully reflect and meditate on the glory of Jesus with the goal to be changed by it, the first instinct that it ought to trigger from our hearts is humility, our own lowliness in light of Christ's supremacy. Notice uh, that in response to the disciples' question, Jesus, he doesn't chide them. He doesn't berate them. Instead, he gently corrects them using a visual aid. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Friends, the world measures greatness in terms of power and prestige and status. Jesus flips this perspective right on its head, doesn't he? Greatness in the, in the kingdom has nothing to do with self-achievement and human endeavor. It's not attained through climbing the ladder of the kingdom. Instead, greatness has everything to do with dependence and vulnerability and humility. According to Jesus, the model for greatness in his kingdom is not a mighty general. It's not a corporate executive. It's not a political leader. It's not even a famous preacher or Christian leader. The model for greatness in the kingdom is a little child. In first century Israel, friends, children had no social status, did they? They were the lowest in the social hierarchy. You understand, right, that in first century Middle Eastern culture, there were no Hollywood child stars, right? This was not a child-centered culture. This was a very much adult-centered culture. And yet, even today, we understand Jesus' point, don't we? Kids are entirely dependent upon their parents. They have no ability to advance their own cause of, without the help and the resources that adults give to them. Friends, what a shock it must have been to the disciples to hear that they, as grown men, needed to become like a little child in order to be great. Greatness in the kingdom of God is one of intentional downward mobility. In Christ's kingdom, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The value that God commends is not the rush to the front for recognition, but the the contentment to take the spot in the back of the line, if that's what would bring honor to King Jesus. Why? Why this upside-down world? Because greatness through human achievement exalts human pride. Greatness through humble dependence upon God exalts His worth. Humility exalts God's sufficiency. Pride magnifies the mirage of our sufficiency. Now, friends, don't underestimate how massively important this object lesson is. Jesus doesn't simply calibrate greatness in the kingdom through the lens of childlike humility. He prescribes humility as the prerequisite to enter the kingdom in the first place. Did you see that? Verse 2, calling to him a child, he put put him in their midst and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, it's hard to overstate how strong a statement that is from Jesus. If you you were to read this verse in the original Greek, you'd see a a grammatical construction that basically amounts to an emphatic negative. It's like Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. It's utterly impossible. To enter the kingdom of heaven is to come under the reign of God that saves you from sin. It's the equivalent of a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth who is the very source and giver of life. To enter the kingdom is to receive eternal life both now and one day in full. Jesus says, unless you have the humility of this child, that cannot happen. You cannot enter the kingdom. I imagine a bunch of burly, bearded, suntan, mostly blue-collar dudes looking down sheepishly, right, at the toddler or the elementary-age kid set in the midst of them and thinking, really? 
Like, surely not. Surely I've got to do something or be something in order to merit entrance into the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, the only thing that you need to do is be like this child. (laughs) My three-year-old, Canaan, loves to play in the pool. Uh, And although he's gotten to the place where, you know, most of the time he's able to go under the water without crying, uh, that used to be a thing, right? Uh, Hardly a time goes by when we're playing in the pool where Canaan uh, won't ask me to, to catch him. He always is asking me to catch him. If he wants to jump into the pool from the side of the pool, Daddy, catch me. If I say, Canaan, I'm gonna throw you up in the air, it's like, no, wait, Daddy, catch me. It's the ultimate expression of humility, isn't it? He's saying, I won't jump unless I'm jumping into your arms. I'm not flying unless I'm flying back to you. And Canaan wouldn't imagine looking to himself to calm his own fears in that moment. He's relying totally on me. Friends, when you see it this way, it's, it's, it's not hard to see that childlike humility is really the starting point for biblical faith, isn't it? If you drill down to the core of what it means to come to Jesus by faith, you're saying to him, Lord Jesus, I can't jump. I can't make it to you on my own. I can't deal with this crushing burden of sin. I I can't rescue myself from sin's penalty and your judgment and your wrath. I need you. You catch me. You take my burden. You rescue me. I can't do it, Lord, but you can. Friends, this idea is not any different from the first sentence out of Jesus' mouth. In the first sermon recorded in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first verse of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being bankrupt in spirit and having childlike humility are essentially the same thing. It looks away from self. It's it's an attitude that looks away from self to find our life and all that we are in another, namely in Christ. Kids in the room, okay? Kids, just look up at me for a second. Let me just say a word to you real quick, okay? The fact that Jesus looks to you as a model of humble dependence, that should encourage you about your own relationship to Jesus. You know, there are some things, kids, that you simply can't do until you're older and wiser and smarter, right? You can't vote until you're 18, Sorry. Uh, You can't get a job until you're, what, 16, I think, or something like that. But guess what, kids? There's one thing that you can do from the earliest of ages, and that's to simply humbly trust in someone other than yourself. You already do it with your parents, whether you realize it or not. Whether you think about it much, you're relying on them for your physical life and sustenance. They give you a roof over your heads. They put food on your table. And and by the way, you should regularly thank them for that if you don't, right? Being a Christian is just taking those same instincts of trust that you've given toward your parents in your physical life and transferring them to Jesus in your spiritual life. You simply say, "I, I can't save myself from my sin. Only Jesus can do that through the life that he lived in my place and the death that he died in my place and his mighty resurrection from the grave. Jesus paid the price of my sin that I deserve. I'm trusting in him to save me. I hope you'll do that, kids. Adult friends, I wonder if you're here this morning, maybe you're even calling yourself a Christian, but you've never humbled yourself in this type of childlike dependence and humility before the Lord. 
In fact, if you were to analyze the patterns and habits of your life, you're marked far more by self-regard and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency than you are kind of the self-yielding humility of a child. Maybe part of what's kept you from humbling down and truly repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone to save you is that you're worried that taking that step would actually affect the way that others view you. So you think, right? Everyone already thinks I'm a Christian. I serve in the nursery. I play on the music team. I hand out the plates for the Lord's Supper. I'd be embarrassed to admit that that none of that was real. Well, friends, don't let your pride keep you from Jesus. Embrace humility. Repent of your sin and come to him. We wouldn't think less of you if you did that. In fact, we'd rejoice with you if you did. For anyone here today without Christ, there's really no prayer that you have to say in particular. There's no aisle that we're going to make you walk. You simply let your heart pivot from your pride and self-sufficiency spiritually to humbly embrace Christ. Lord, I can't rescue myself from the the hell I deserve, but Christ can, and he did. Forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my arrogance and self-sufficiency. I'm turning, just like Jesus said, I'm turning to become like a child and trust in Christ. Friends, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for anything. You can do that even right now in this moment. I pray that you will. Brothers and sisters, the humility by which we enter the kingdom ought to be the humility by which we live in it, right? I pray that here at RGC, the Lord would guard us from the type of greatness seeking pride of the disciples. I think this passage should actually cause us to check our hearts and check our motives to evaluate them. Are we, what, what, are we doing what we're doing here within the body of Christ to be noticed, uh, to be praised, or so that Christ might be praised through us? Beloved, let me ask you a question. Would you be content, would you be content in your acts of service if you were never highly regarded for them, but Jesus was? Would it be enough for you if the elders never saw you doing what you do? Your home group leaders were in the dark about your good deeds, but God saw and God knew, which he always does. Is that the type of God-exalting disregard for self that's your definition of greatness in the kingdom? I think doctrine-loving churches like ours need to be extra vigilant in this regard as, as a whole, as a congregation. There's no church like ours, right? We do things the biblical way. We're reformed right? We practice church membership. We've got the best philosophy of ministry. Those other churches, man, they're like second-rate churches in town, right? We're the greatest. Oh, friends, we must be careful. Surely, if we have the mind of Christ, we'll even embrace our doctrinal distinctives and ministry convictions with childlike humility, with a spirit of graciousness, not a haughty, critical, flame-throwing spirit. I said, it, I said it a few weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, I think, but, and I'll repeat it this morning. The most important thing about us here at RGC, it's the thing that's been the most important in every church for the last 2,000 years. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I believe a humble congregation, a humble congregation is more quick to identify the things that bind us together with other Christians and other churches, and much slower to identify ourselves with the things that drive us apart. Trust me, I believe strongly 
and expositional preaching and meaningful church membership and congregation-centered worship. I hope you sense that just intuitively if we haven't said it out loud. But it, it, you know, in some ways, I actually think those are the normal things that churches have done for the last 2,000 years. But even where those things are in deficit in other churches, friends, if the gospel of Jesus is preached in those places, we can rejoice and humbly ask the Lord to bless the work there. Our mindset ought not to be that we're the greatest, but that we serve the greatest. We come together to highlight Christ's supremacy, not our own. Friends, after all, what we see in Jesus is not the upward mobility of a crown seeker. We see in Jesus the downward mobility of a cross seeker. Jesus had become like the child he set before the disciples. He, the divine son of God, emptied himself of the rights and privileges of his equality with God, as we read this morning, and took upon himself our human weakness and frailty in the form of a servant so that he indeed might serve us and rescue us by dying in our place. If there was ever someone who walked this earth who deserved to assert his rights and flaunt his own greatness, it was the son of God. Yet even Jesus knew that it was the Father's prerogative to exalt him, not his own. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus proved just how great he is through his humility and his subsequent glory. So friends, if this morning you want to stop clawing after the wind of self-centered greatness, your first stop needs to be to look long and hard at the humility of Jesus Christ and let your heart become absorbed in him. The more that happens, the more self-absorption fades away. Prioritize the greatness of humility. Number two, pursue the the holiness of love. In in verse five, Jesus springboards from his object lesson about childlike humility to teach his disciples and what their mindset should be toward all those who follow him. Look at verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Friends, this is a bracing statement from Jesus, isn't it? I, I, we better understand who the one such child and these little ones are in, this, in these verses. Is Jesus talking about actual children here? Or is he using children as, a, as an, an analogy for something else? Well, I think the key to unlocking our understanding here is how Jesus describes the little ones there in verse 5. He describes them as these little ones who believe in me. And then as the passage progresses, it becomes even more clear in verses 10 to 14 that Jesus' primary point in these verses is not the treatment of children, but the treatment of all of his disciples, his followers. He's talking about how we deal with other Christians. But let me just say, before we get to his main idea here, because Jesus uses a young child as his object lesson for broader care and love in the body of Christ, friends, clearly, we ought to take seriously our responsibility to welcome the little ones who are in our midst here at Redeeming Grace Church. They are precious to God, and they ought to be precious to us. Love of the little ones who run around us here, who make noise sometimes in our services, they're not a nuisance. They're not annoyances that just kind of merely suck volunteer, volunteer labor from our worship gatherings, right? 
There are precious image bearers of the Almighty. They're prime targets for love and gospel ministry. Friends, within the promises that we've made to each other in our church covenant is this massively important promise. We will endeavor to bring up children under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Friends, you realize that promise that we make each time we recite our church covenant, that is not merely a promise for parents It's a promise each of us has made that will actively work for the spiritual good of our little ones. Friends, it's why in in, in the membership interviews that we do prior to someone becoming part of our church family, I usually ask the question something like this. Is there a good reason why you couldn't serve in the nursery or in the kids ministry? Because it's an expectation for all of our members to be investing in our little ones. Friends, ministry to our kids is not merely for the especially gifted or those especially geared toward kids, it is for us all, whether formally or non-formally. Perhaps one application from this sermon for you, brother, for you, sister, is what can I do practically, in real time, in real action? What can I do to fulfill my promise that I've made as part of the church covenant? What can I do to contribute to the spiritual nurturing of the little ones here at Redeeming Grace Church? Friends, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the line, sorry, kids just aren't my thing. Listen, I know what you mean by that statement. I I really do. But in light of a passage like this, I do think that that line of thinking should be challenged. Friends, I'm glad Jesus doesn't feel that way. Maybe after the sermon, some of you ought to shoot our deacon of kids ministry, Casey, an email and just ask how you might serve the little ones here at RGC. Let me ask you, why do you think Jesus continued to use children as an object lesson for for life in the Christian community? Why didn't he just flat out say, my followers or my disciples? Why would he use this term, little ones? Well, friends, I think what Jesus highlights through the rest of the passage isn't so much our need for humility, but our insignificance and our spiritual vulnerability and our preciousness to God. You think about children. My kids in their young ages are are helpless to defend themselves from a serious threat, right? They need Lindsay and me to keep them safe. Parents, I'm sure you're like me. I I tell you, I can't can't tell you how many times I've saved my kids' lives. (laughs) Seriously, like not in some big heroic way, but keeping them from swallowing a toy that they've stuck in their mouth, right? Stopping them from running into moving traffic, Uh, you know, stepping in front of them when they're about to plow full speed into the corner of a table, right? Diving in after Canaan when he's fallen in the pool without his floaty. Friends, children are precious, to their parents and loved ones and so believers as God's children are precious to him. And as a child of God, all the rest of God's children in Christ should be precious to you and to me. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Notice how Jesus makes this point positively and negatively. Positively, at the beginning of verse 5, Jesus commends receiving other believers. You see that? These little ones. Receive these little ones in his name. To welcome one of Jesus' little ones is to welcome Jesus himself, since the little ones represent him on this earth. And then negatively, said against that idea in verse 5, is causing the little ones to sin. 
And then in verse 10, despising the little ones, okay? So clearly what Jesus is angling for here when he says receive these little ones in my name is not merely kind of just the welcome of hospitality, although that's surely part of it. He's talking about a holistic affirmation and love and care for all those who follow him. It's the opposite of despising the little ones, right? I think one reason Jesus emphasizes the need for believers to treat each other well is that he knows that the treatment outside the church, our treatment in the world by unbelievers is often going to be hostile. That's what he's getting at at the beginning of verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus understands The world without God will be dead set against his people until he returns. The world will tempt believers to stumble and fall away through the allurement of the pleasures of sin, and especially in this context, I think, through persecution, through opposition. Satan rages, friends, like a roaring lion, seeking to devour those who profess Christ. And so Jesus wants the community of faith, the local church, he wants the church to be a safe haven from such attacks. The little ones, these followers of Jesus, are precious to God, and so they ought to be esteemed and honored and protected and cared for by other Christians. One of our elders, Bo Soto, often reminds us that there are 55 one another's in the New Testament, right? 55 commands about how we're to treat one another within the body of Christ and in the local church. Friends, if you were to ask me, well, John, what does it look like to practically receive one such child in my name, as Jesus said here in Matthew 18? Well, I would say it actually looks a lot like Romans 12, 9 to 16. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it here in a second. Romans 12, 9 to 16. It's a, it's a life oriented toward the good of other believers. It's an outward-focused, other-centered, Christian love oozing life, Okay. Just listen to some snippets of Romans 12, 9 to 16, and see if it squares with what Jesus is saying here about how we treat the little ones, other other Christians. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. You see, basic Christianity is love-oriented Christianity. The Christian life is the church-shaped life. It's a life centered upon building up the body of Christ. Yes, friends, we have obligations towards outsiders in in our evangelism as well. There's no question. But friends, let's remember that one of the primary ways that we display to the watching world that we're Christ is our love one for another. Friends, is this how you think about your relationship and your discipleship to Christ The Bible knows nothing of a purely me and Jesus Christianity. That's foreign to the New Testament. Yes, the Christian life is a personal relationship with Jesus through faith. But beloved, that faith is revealed to be genuine by by active love and genuine love for other believers, other little ones. Church family, I I, I just want to let you know, I praise the Lord 
for the way that you so often put this type of love and care on display here in our church. The quickness that you respond to emails asking for help. The filling up of, of meal trains that go out to the hurting. Uh, the offline private conversations of encouragement and exhortation that just happen on a daily basis here at Redeeming Grace Church. Friends, let's keep that up, okay? And, and may this type of mindset be a hallmark of our church for decades to come. But let me just say, if you're, a, you're here as a member of Redeeming Grace Church and you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I just don't feel very connected here. I don't feel like anyone's investing in me. I, I don't see really anyone reaching out to me. Friends, I'm not denying there, there, that there you know, are times that brothers and sisters fall through the cracks. We're far from a perfect church, far from it. But friends, each time you're tempted to grumble and turn inward about your lack of care, perhaps ask yourself questions like, who am I investing in within the body of Christ? Am I showing up at prayer meetings in our house-to-house groups, which are kind of the relational nexus points in the body? Am I showing up and showing others that I love and care for them? It's my conviction, friends, that the more you invest in others, the more you invest in others, the more you'll find yourself being invested in through the mutual love of the body of Christ. That's just how God has designed it to be. In verses 5 to 9, Jesus helps us see the urgency of what he's talking about through a kind of a negative lens. Let's look at verse 5 one more time. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Friends, the word translated to sin there in the English Standard Version in verse 6 is actually the Greek word that means to stumble. It comes from the same Greek root that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, if you're familiar with that book, when he talks about a stumbling block. It carries with it the idea of something that causes tripping or, or falling. Uh, throughout Matthew, Jesus uses this word to stumble, not merely to kind of describe a casual sin, but an ultimate falling away from him. Even here in this passage, that seems to be how Jesus is using it. Let your eyes scan over verses 7 to 9 for a moment. Look at verses 7 to 9. Jesus uses this same word repeatedly when talking about the world's temptations and then for the need for spiritual amputation to avoid eternal judgment. Each time you see the words to sin in verses 7 to 9, it is that same Greek word that means to stumble, to fall. Yes, stumbling certainly includes sinning, but, but it's a type of sin that leads to an ultimate falling away from Jesus. What Jesus is saying in verse 6 is that execution by drowning, listen to this, execution by drowning is preferable to causing one of God's little ones to stumble and fall away. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Why does Jesus say drowning is preferable to spiritually harming other Christians? Presumably, because those who seek to damage someone's faith in Christ will come under God's judgment. And that type of death is far, far worse than drowning. That's why Jesus frames it the way he does in verses 8 and 9. The fate of those who seek to harm the little ones is so severe that we should gladly sacrifice our limbs to avoid it, right? If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life 
eternal life, crippled or lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, now clearly Jesus is using hyperbole here, right? He's not speaking literally. He's saying we should do whatever it takes to avoid causing spiritual harm to a little one. Even if that means amputating your hand or your foot or plucking out your eye, cut off the opportunity to sin and harm a little one. In Matthew 5, 5 Jesus uses this same verbiage, this same hyperbole when talking about lust. Pluck out an eye, right? But here, the context is clearly how we treat other Christians. Those who deliberately seek to do professing believers harm demonstrate that they were never Christ in the first place. Instead, they're aligned with the world who, in fact, is set in opposition of Christ's little ones. And so what awaits them is God's holy wrath and separation from him in hell. As we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about how these warnings function in the Scripture, Jesus is not preaching that someone can lose their salvation. It's not what he's saying. He's using graphic language to shock our spiritual system. True believers hear warnings like this, and it jolts us into the perseverance of faith and love. We cannot imagine causing someone to stumble like this and so stumble ourselves. And so we persevere in faith-fueled love for our brothers and sisters. Say, John, what what are the type of things that Jesus might have had in mind in in a church that we should avoid that might crush the faith of one of Christ's little ones? Well, how about false teaching? Perhaps the primary example of those who tempt weak little ones to stumble are wolves within the church who prey on the sheep. Friends, this is why sound doctrine matters, right? It's not just the elders who are charged to protect the flock. Each one of us, as members of our church, has committed to guard the gospel here. We're looking out for those who might twist the gospel and so harm the little ones. But beyond this, what about just the more ordinary ways that we might damage someone spiritually? How about constant criticism of others within the body? A backbiting tongue. Slander against the little one. It's not true. And how many stories have I heard about people who left the church and ended up walking away from Christ after being hurt by church leadership or because of the unkindness of professing believers? Should they have walked away? Of course not. But my goodness, surely we in the church should take extra care not to harm those who profess to belong to Christ. Beloved, take Jesus' warning seriously. Eternal life is at stake in how we treat other Christians. Not because we become converted by loving other Christians. Love is not the root of salvation, but it is the fruit. We evidence true conversion by a genuine love for other Christians. The Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In verses 10 to 14, 
Jesus gives another reason, a much more, I think, naturally encouraging reason why we ought to love the little ones. Not merely because eternal life is at stake, but also because every one of us is precious to God. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Okay, do you see Jesus' logic here? Why should we take care not to despise fellow Christians? Because in heaven, our angels always see the face of the father. Now, this is an unusual statement, okay? There is no parallel like it in the rest of the Bible. Some have used this verse as proof for guardian angels, right? That each believer has one of the heavenly hosts uh, specially tasked with protecting him or her. But notice, the, the emphasis here is not on earthly protection, but on heavenly worship. The angels are in God's presence, looking upon God's face, as it were, in their constant devotion to him. See that? Friends, I'm going to level with you. I do not understand this verse entirely, but I do, I do trust that it's true. Why should we not treat any other follower with Jesus with derision as, as if he or she is inferior to us? Because each one of us has the high honor of being represented in heaven by angels who worship in the presence of God Almighty. And one day we will join them in the kingdom to come. More easily understood is Jesus' parable in verses 12 to 13. The second way we know the little ones are precious to the Father is that our good shepherd will do anything to protect and pursue a wandering sheep. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In Luke 15, uh, Jesus uses a similar parable to describe and to illustrate the Father's heart of love toward unbelievers. But clearly, friends, the context of Matthew 18 helps us to see that here Jesus is describing the Father's heart toward who? Toward the little ones, toward other Christians, toward believers. Any good shepherd... Any good shepherd worth his salt wouldn't hesitate to go after even one sheep who wanders away from the flock. So great is his commitment that he'll, he'll risk his life to go for them, right? He'll go after them until he finds them. And, and when he finds the sheep who's gone astray, it's greater cause for happiness than the other 99 who stayed with the flock. Verse 14 explains the parable. So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Friends, we're going to return to this parable in two weeks when we look at Jesus' teaching on verses 15 to 20 on church discipline because really it helps us understand what our aim and attitude should be when dealing with wandering, unrepentant, professing Christians. We reflect the heart of the Father. We go on a rescue mission and risk life and limb to save a wandering sheep. That's what church discipline is. But until then, until we get there in a couple weeks, beloved, let's just rejoice this morning that we have a God who loves us enough to come after us. His heart roars for the good of his little ones. If, we'll, if we're truly his, if you are truly the fathers, 
Friends, Jesus, or the Father here in this verse, the Father will move heaven and earth to keep us from perishing. We may wander, we may stray, but through the miracle of grace, our Father always brings us back into the fold by the convicting work of His Spirit and the promises of the gospel. Some of you, I know, carry deep scars from past sins. The reminders of mistakes that you've made plague your conscience every day. Friends, surely a father who pursues his children like the shepherd who searches high and low for his lost sheep, surely this type of father is committed to forgiveness and restoration for those who repent of their sin and trust again afresh in the work of Christ. Friends, remember the ground of your forgiveness is not found in you, but in the love of God in Christ. Friends, that's a well you can drink from for the rest of your life, and it will never once run dry. Not once will you come to the well of God's love and forgiveness and find there's no water there for you. It's ever replenishing. You'll keep coming back and coming back and coming back, and although your love may vacillate from God, Praise God, God's love never vacillates for you. RGC family, our Father's heart is is this committed to the good of His little ones, His sons and daughters. And that means, surely our hearts should likewise be committed to the spiritual good of the Father's little ones. Since after all, they're our brothers and sisters in the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a passage like this that simply kind of grips the collar of our life and, and orients us once again, tugs it back toward humility and love. Oh, Father, I pray that uh, these two characteristics, the fruits of your Spirit, might be uh, marking our lives here at Redeeming Grace Church in, in an abundant way. Oh, Father, may we truly be marked by Christ-centered humility. Well, Father, if there's anyone here who has not ever come to to you through the faith and humility of a child to humbly give their life to you by faith and trust in the work of Christ for them, oh, Father, may they humble themselves even this morning, turn from their sins to Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians, Father, may the humility of Jesus uh, enthrall us. May we uh, be changed into the likeness of Christ as we behold who He is. And Father, in that humility, then, may You spur us on to love and to good deeds uh, that will endure until You come again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.